Uh, If you have a Bible with you and want to follow along, uh, we are going to be in Acts chapter 2 this morning. Uh, If you remember, we've spent the last couple of weeks uh, camped out in chapter 1 of Acts, really searching for clues that explain the pretty remarkable story of how this small ramshackle bunch of believers became the most influential force in the whole of the Roman Empire. It's an absolutely astonishing story. Now, last time round, I simply argued this would actually never have happened if they didn't, first of all, believe that the message about Jesus was 100% true, that it was none other than God became flesh, who came down to earth, lived a sinless life, died in our place as a sacrifice for our sins, And then here's the real game changer. He rose again from the dead and he proved beyond all doubt that he was alive. I mean, if you were to witness someone resurrected from the dead, I'm suggesting it would probably have a bit of an impact on your life, wouldn't it? Imagine the friends of Jesus seeing him crucified, brutally hung on the cross, murdered, and then come back to life, and not only come back to life, but show that he wasn't in any way kind of affected by the brutality of the crucifixion, really alive, not kind of staggering around and about to die again, but full of life, convincing them he was raised from the dead. Imagine the impact on their lives. If they weren't completely persuaded that Jesus had been raised from the dead, I'd suggest there would be no book of Acts. So we started by looking at the power of the message. Really more than anything else, it's this that explains the willingness of the first church to themselves in just suffering and persecution, imprisonment, even death, just to try and get the message out to others. There is phenomenal power in simply believing the message is true. However, that is only half the story. You see, in the middle of Acts chapter 1, nestled in verse 8, Jesus makes this promise. He says, but you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. What we're going to be looking at this week is the crucial role of the power of the Holy Spirit in the life of the first church. And, I'd suggest by implication, in our lives as well. Now, straight out of the gate, I'm aware that this topic splits opinion. Truth be told, for many of us, the Holy Spirit just makes us feel ever so slightly nervous He's like the the crazy uncle who perhaps shows up at family gatherings and everyone feels kind of slightly concerned. What's about to happen? It could get out of control if he's there. Well, we kind of like father, we we understand him, kind of get the son, we we, we kind of like him. But we read about the Holy Spirit blowing wherever he wants to blow and that kind of freaks us out a bit. And then there are others of us who have perhaps elevated the Holy Spirit beyond his rightful place in the Trinity. For some, it's like he's the only point, he's the main focus, he's the only power. 
rather than part of the triune God, who when all is said and done has a role within the Trinity that's not to make much of himself, but rather to make much of Jesus. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at the very famous passage which described what actually happened when the Holy Spirit was first poured out back on the day of Pentecost. And then I simply want to draw out three basic truths from these verses that I'm hoping will help to explain the vital role of the Holy Spirit in our lives today. I'm going to pick it up in verse 1 of Acts chapter 2. On the day of Pentecost, all of the believers were meeting together in one place. Suddenly, there was a sound from heaven like the roaring of a mighty windstorm, and it filled the house where they were sitting. Then, what looked like flames or tongues of fire appeared and settled on each of them. And everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in other languages as the Holy Spirit gave them this ability. At that time, there were devout Jews from every nation living in Jerusalem. When they heard the loud noise, everyone came running, and they're bewildered to hear their own languages being spoken by the believers. They were completely amazed. How can this be, they exclaimed. These people are all from Galilee, and yet we hear them speaking in our own native languages. Here we are. Parthians, Medes, Elamites, people from Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, the province of Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the areas of Libya around Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. And we all hear these people speaking in our own languages about the wonderful things that God has done. They stood there amazed and perplexed. What can this mean? They asked each other. But others in the crowd ridiculed them, saying, they're just drunk, that's all. Now, the three phenomena in this passage associated with the day of Pentecost. There's wind, there's fire, Then there's this miraculous ability to speak in other languages. And I think that each one of those things reveals to us an important aspect of what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And so let's look at each one of those in a little more detail. First thing we learn here is the Holy Spirit provides power from outside of us. Notice in verse 2 how it says, They heard and felt something like the roaring of a mighty windstorm. doesn't say it was a mighty wind, it was like a mighty wind. The point is they experienced something coming to them from outside. In fact, we're told here it was coming from outside the whole world. It says it came from heaven and they all felt it. Every single one of them in the room, they heard it, they all saw it. So this wasn't some kind of individual internal psychological experience. Now, I suggest that immediately puts us on a collision course with what our culture tells you and me about our problems and the solution to them. You see, the culture says that most of our problems come from outside of us and inside, if you can tap into it, you have what it takes to solve them all. Whereas the message of Christianity says that your main problems actually fundamentally come from inside you. 
And out there, God has all the power you need to overcome them. Let's illustrate this. A while ago, I was watching highlights of Glastonbury, and they showed some rock star who had finished her performance, and she turned to her cheering, adoring fans, put her fist in the air, the top of her voice shouted out, whatever you aspire to be and do, you have all the power within you to make it happen. That's what the world tells you. If you have problems, they're all out there. They're all other people's fault. They're all other people's to be blamed for it. Social prejudice, dysfunctional family life, political, economic corruption, the problems are out there. Other people are to be blamed. And you have inside you everything you need in order to solve your problems. The Bible says the complete opposite is true. A fundamental nature is to be self-centered, It's to feel like we are the center of the universe. And a lot of the time, I think we're so self-centered that we're blind to how self-centered we actually are. It's like we're so self-centered at times, we can't admit how self-centered we are. And you know, I think that's one of the reasons why the world can be such a miserable place at times. Because you have a whole bunch of little centers of the universe all charging around and only one person ever can be the center of the universe and so we're constantly clashing with one another. Listen, one of the results of a couple of generations now of just bombarding our kids with self-esteem means we've turned into an entire nation of people who say, look, if I have a problem, it's not me, it's you. But do you realize how hopeless that is? If all of your problems are circumstances and people that you have no control over, what a frustrating life. But what if your main problems are actually you? Well, then there's hope. Because we see here that God has some power that can come into your life and change you from the inside out. So that's the first thing. The world says the problem, well, it's all out there, and the solution is in here. Christianity says the problem is actually in here. It's the human heart, that's what's to blame. And the power of God is the solution out there. Now, verse 3, reading on, shows us the second phenomena that's associated with Pentecost. We read, then, what looked like flames or tongues of fire appeared and settled on each of them. I don't want you to miss the significance of that. Back in the Old Testament, when the glory of God showed up, often it showed up as fire. So when God's making a covenant with Abraham back in Genesis 15, he appears as a blazing torch. When he appears to Moses the very first time, he appears as a burning bush. When he comes down on Mount Sinai to appear to the people of Israel, he comes down, if you remember, in fire and in smoke. This glory, this special presence of God, this relational presence of God is very often depicted as fire. He expresses it as fire. So when he's leading the Israelites through the wilderness at night, he's a pillar of fire. In Ezekiel 1, when Ezekiel has this rather bizarre vision of the glory of God, he sees fire everywhere. And whenever the fire of God, the presence of God, shows up in the Old Testament, it was overwhelming. 
At times it was intolerable. Sometimes it was even fatal. Now do you realize what's happening on the day of Pentecost? It's almost as though every believer is now effectively a burning bush. It's kind of what's happening on the day of Pentecost. The glory of God, the presence of God has now come into every single believer who has been filled with the Holy Spirit. So that's the second thing. The Holy Spirit brings us inner fire. Maybe you're thinking, okay, well, that's amazing, but in reality, what does that actually mean? Well, whenever I read in the Bible about the fullness of the Spirit, it's expressed in many different ways, but I think there is a common thread that runs through a lot of those passages. I mean, do you remember the occasion when the Holy Spirit comes on Jesus in his baptism. He hears this audible voice from heaven. What does the voice say? This is my son with whom I am well pleased. You're my son and I delight in you. You say, well, well, that's Jesus. Of course there's going to be a voice saying that about him. But in Romans 8 verse 16, we're told that the Spirit comes into our hearts as believers into our hearts as Christians, and bears witness with our spirits that we are children of God. Similarly, in Galatians 4 verse 6, Paul says that the Spirit of God comes into our hearts crying, do you remember what it cries? Abba, Father. It's the same thing. Big part of the job of the Holy Spirit is to come into our lives, to come into our hearts and tell us about the Father's love for us, his delight in us, the fact that we are his children. Now, how does the Holy Spirit do that? Well, if there was time, I would read you John chapters 14 through to the end of 16, Sadly, there's another site for me to get to this morning, so we're not going to read all those chapters. You can read them later, but a paraphrase is this. Jesus is talking about sending the Holy Spirit. He says, look, I've told you many things, but the Holy Spirit will take all of the teaching that I've given you and he will reveal it to you. In other words, the things you kind of know in your heads, the Holy Spirit is now going to come personally and make a fiery reality in your life. Let me give another illustration. It's borrowed from a guy called Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of my favorite preachers of all time. He describes watching a father and his small son walking along the street. Uh, And the father and son, they're chatting away, but at one point they turn to one another and the father swept the son up into his arms and hugged him. This little boy wrapped his arms around his father's neck. They hugged and kissed one another. Then the father put the boy down and they kept on walking along the road. Now here's the question. Was the little boy more a son when he was in his father's arms than he was down on the street? Legally, no. He he was as much a son in the arms as on the street, as much a son on the street as in the arms. Legally, no difference objectively no difference at all subjectively experientially all the difference in the world in other words in his father's arms he felt he was experiencing his father's love he was experiencing he was feeling his sonship 
And I think that's a big part of what the Holy Spirit does in our lives too. It's like he comes down and he helps you sense, feel, experience, if you like, your Heavenly Father's arms around you. He gives you a deep assurance of who you are in Christ. He he takes the things that you might kind of know in your head and he makes them real in your life. And so when you've experienced this inner fire of the Spirit, it's like you're able to say, well, wait a minute, if someone as all-powerful as that, the creator of the universe, the one who's Lord over all, if someone as all-powerful as that could love me like this, he delights in me. He's gone to infinite lengths and depths to save me at immense cost to himself. He says he'll never let me go. That nothing in all of heaven or earth, nothing in all of time or eternity will ever, ever, ever make him lose me. If that's true, why am I worried? Why am I upset about money? Why do I care if that person seems to have snubbed me? Why do I ever get down? Just have a listen to how Lloyd-Jones describes what it feels like to be filled with the Spirit's fire. He says, The fuses of love are so overloaded, they almost blow out. The subconscious doubts that you weren't necessarily thinking about at the time, but that do pop up every now and then, well, they're gone. And in their place is utter and indestructible assurance so that you know that you know that you know that you know that God is real and that Jesus lives and that you are loved and that to be saved is the greatest thing in the whole world. And as you walk on down the street You can scarcely contain yourself and you want to cry out at the top of your voice, my father loves me, my father loves me. Oh, what a great father I have. What a father, what a father. That is what it's like to be clothed with power from on high a driving out of any doubt, of any lack of self-assurance or joy in our salvation, a blowing of the fuses of our hearts under the sheer weight of God's delight in us, his children. That's what it looks like on the inside. But what about on the outside? Well, it says here, it looks like you are drunk. (laughs) Look at verse 13. Some said... They're just drunk, that's all. Paul, later on in the New Testament, in Ephesians 5, verse 18, he picks up on this. He says, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. What does that mean? I think it means that being filled with the Spirit is like being drunk, but it's also unlike being drunk. I'll tell you how it's like being drunk. The reason the onlookers thought that the believers were drunk on the day of Pentecost, I think at least in part, was because of their joyful fearlessness. 
I mean, they were out in the public square speaking the gospel, the good news about Jesus, without any inhibition whatsoever. They were too happy, too jolly, too merry to care what people thought. They were too happy to be afraid of anything or anyone. Now look, when you see this joyful fearlessness, this lack of any inhibition, it can remind you of being drunk. Because that's what alcohol does, doesn't it? It takes away momentarily your inhibitions. You're, you're fearless in the moment because you're so happy. In that sense, being filled with the Spirit is like being drunk. Because to feel, to experience, to know your Father's arms around you for His love for you to be this fiery, burning reality inside you, that makes you so joyful it gives you fresh courage. But, and there is a but, the Holy Spirit doesn't do it like alcohol does it. It's what I think Paul means when he says, don't be drunk with wine, be filled with the Spirit. You see, alcohol is a depressant. It it depresses part of your brain functions. The reason you're so happy when you're drunk is because temporarily it makes you stupid, It's because you're less aware of reality. The things that bothered you when you were fully sober and aware of reality suddenly don't bother you quite so much. Why? Because you really can't think very straight. In other words, reality is hidden from me. What's really wrong is hidden from me. I'm happy through stupidity because alcohol is a depressant. It's blurred the ability of my mind to think and reason. The Holy Spirit is not like that. The Holy Spirit gives you joy through intelligence and understanding, not through stupidity, because he shows you ultimate reality. He says, wait a moment, the person whose opinion matters most loves you unconditionally. He will do anything for you. He's given up everything for you. He will never, ever, ever let you go. In other words, the Holy Spirit makes you more aware of reality. He shows you a bigger perspective. He shows you all of reality. As a result, the things that were previously bothering you become much smaller in your minds. So there's a stupid happiness and there's intelligent happiness And the Holy Spirit gives you joyful fearlessness by making you more aware of reality, especially in acknowledging and assuring you that you are his dearly loved child. Which kind of leads to the third mark of spirit-filledness. Reading on, it says in verse 4, Everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in other languages as the Holy Spirit gave them this ability. And then in verse 11, it says, we all hear these people speaking in our own languages about the wonderful things that God has done. So the third mark of being filled with the Spirit, it gives us power to be effective witnesses. Now look, if you're really Spirit-filled, you're full of the Spirit, you're not just thinking about how happy you are, You're thinking wider than that. 
You think about the wonderful things that God has done. If you like, you think about the gospel, the good news of what Jesus has done for you, and you have a whole new courage in speaking to people about the gospel. But I think there's something even more significant than that going on here. It's not just that at Pentecost we're shown that the Spirit brings power to share the gospel. Notice how this first presentation of the gospel was in every different language all at once. Now, just to explain, at Pentecost, Jews would come to Jerusalem on pilgrimage from all over the known world. And so most of them didn't actually speak Hebrew as their first language. They spoke some other tongue. Therefore, you had all these different languages present in Jerusalem at this time. And when the gospel was first proclaimed to the world, it was proclaimed in every language all at once. Now, do you know the significance of that? I don't think we've actually come to grips with it. By deliberate miracle, God made sure there was no language and therefore no culture that has precedence over any other in the Christian faith. There's no one culture that has pride of place. There's no language, there's no culture that everyone can turn to and say, oh, but that's the original one. Everything else sort of comes in secondary. Listen, because of Pentecost, there's no one language. There's no one culture that's the right culture. It's like Christianity comes into every culture, it renews every culture, but at the same time, it honors every culture. You're actually given a perspective as a Christian. Whatever culture you're from, you can see the excesses and the imbalances, the idols, the God substitutes in your culture. So you're not the same, but if you're African and you become a Christian, you don't overnight become European all of a sudden. If you're an African who becomes a Christian, you are an African Christian. If you're Chinese, you become a Christian, you are a Chinese Christian. If you're from India, you become a Christian, you're an Indian Christian. You are still in your culture. Christianity leaves you there. It doesn't steamroller all of the different cultures. It loves them. It honors them. It renews them. And it allows for this incredible diversity. Why? Because of Pentecost. Because God refused to allow one culture or one language to be the predominant one in Christianity. So, for example, different cultures have different narratives, different ways of thinking about what makes a good leader, different understandings of time and punctuality, and good use of time. Different understandings of how you argue and reason with one another. Different ways of dressing. And Christianity doesn't trample all over those things. So here's what I have to be really careful not to do. I mustn't think that my particular kind of Christianity in my preferred culture, is real Christianity, the genuine article. Like, for me, culturally, I like the meeting starting bang on time. In fact, my preference would be for it to start two minutes early and for everyone to be sitting, ready, prepared, waiting, active, awake, raring to go. 
Uh, I like to dress casually. I, I don't put on my Sunday best. I, I love 34 and a half minute expository sermons with three clear points and an application at the end so everyone can go away and say, okay, this is what I need to do as a result. And I can be tempted to think, well, that's real Christianity. Everyone should kind of be fitted into that mould. Not this thing over here where people arrive two hours after the official start of the meeting, dressed in their Sunday best, and the guy just stands at the front telling stories with no application. How dare I think like that? What, What right have I got to impose my cultural preferences on others? You see, on the one hand, we must not insist that the particular kind of Christianity we have, even here at Church Central, is the only kind. And at the same time, we really do need to be working as much as we possibly can to be as racially and culturally diverse as we can, because that's what the Spirit wants. Please don't miss this. At Pentecost, God did not let the gospel go out just through one language and one culture. It says we all hear these people speaking in our own languages about the wonderful things that God has done. If you really want to feel the force of what was happening here at Pentecost, you need to go all the way back to Genesis chapters 10 and 11 bit like in Acts 2 with this long list of almost unpronounceable different nations here. Genesis 10 also gives us a long list of different nations and in the next chapter, Genesis 11, it tells us all of these people from different nations got together to build a tower. It's called the Tower of, remember what it's called? Tower of Babel. They're trying to create this tower. It was a temple, a new religion that was all about them and not about God. They were arrogant, they were proud, they were in defiance of God, and God judged them. Do you know how he judged them? Well, they just had one language, he confused, he muddled up their speech, so they started babbling, they couldn't understand each other. And so the miracle of Pentecost, although they had all of these different languages, suddenly they could understand each other. Why? Because of the judgment of Babel being reversed. And people who were once at each other's throats, hostile to one another, suspicious, prejudiced against one another, people couldn't even understand each other, they're now able to understand each other. They're being brought back together again. And the reason why this is possible, ultimately, is because the judgment came down on Jesus. The fire of God's wrath came down on Jesus so that we today could know the fire of his love. The judgment came down on Jesus so that we could see all of the consequences of judgment that are bothering the human race being reversed through him. In fact, they're not just reversed, they're redeemed. That They result in something even better, something even more glorious. The rich diversity of cultures made one in Christ. So do you know what it means to be part of a church? Do you know what it means to be part even of this site? This isn't just a place for you as an individual to come along and get inspired. 
This is a place for you to live out gradually, slowly, but surely the undoing of the judgment that's come into the human race and is dividing people. This is a place not only for you to get an inner fire and to get your own personal needs met, this is a place for the barriers to come down between our different cultures and our different races. And for us to show the world, for us to model, to demonstrate to the world how the human race can be healed under the lordship of Jesus Christ. As Paul puts it in Ephesians 3 verse 10, we the church are to display the manifold multicolored wisdom of God. It's like every dividing wall is demolished and we can exist together in family, in community, in unity, where previously there was enmity, prejudice, suspicion, even hatred. Don't you want to be part of that? I don't, I want to be part of that. But if you and I want to be part of that, we need to be filled with the Spirit.